am so pumped. Are you so pumped? No, we're in for a good one. This is gonna be good. Aren't they all good ones? Yeah, but this, I'm really excited about mine. That's good. This gets me going. I'm proud of this fork construction. It is one of the better ones, although I don't know how the first couple episodes we had so much light in here because this is just like... Because we had a different blanket. This is just advanced darkness. This is the best it's ever been. It's like a big top in here. I took a picture so that we could remember how great it looked. Literally, that we could have just a miniature circus in here. We do have a, a cat. We could call like a panther or something. Or we could train her to jump through hoops. We're trying to train her to sit before she gets her food. And I, she sits, but I think it's probably a coincidence. Got anything exciting happening? It's snowing again. When isn't it? Well, it was really nice, and now it's not. So that's different. I was really enjoying the nice weather, but now it's gross. I feel better, so that's good. Went back to the gym, so that's good. Mm -hmm. I'd missed like a week of that, and you and I are really big into going to the gym. We spend like two hours there because we're meatheads. I do. Oh, I was going to say, that's just us. We pick things up, we put things down. Except you're not supposed to, that's like the whole Planet Fitness. Though I had a commercial against that. Yeah, but it's funny because I think that our Planet Fitness that we go to is like pretty full of people with muscles. Maybe I notice it more because we're always in the weight area. So I found out two fun things today through listening to other podcasts okay um i don't know if you know like you fly a lot you're gonna be slightly increased or at increased uh risks of like getting radiation because you're like higher in the atmosphere so you're closer to the sun whatever how many times do you have to fly for that to be true though you know people thought for a while you'd have to fly fly like a ton so there was the belief that pilots and like flight attendants yeah would be at an increased risk, but they never really had found that. Uh-huh. But a Harvard study just recently found that uh, flight attendants have a higher prevalence of uh, breast cancer, uterine cancer, gastrointestinal cancer, thyroid cancer, and cervical cancer when compared to the general public. Oh. Well, but they go a lot. So, like, I fly maybe once or twice a year. Yeah, you as the average American that flies. I'm fine, probably. Yeah, it's just flight attendants. That's- and probably pilots also. That's a bummer. Hmm. I'm kind of surprised there's not some kind of, like, barrier for that. Like lead? Well, yeah, I know you don't want to use lead paint or anything, obviously, but... Or line your plane with lead, because it's incredibly heavy. I know. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Eh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess those things that you wear at the dentist are super heavy. I mean, the, this study wasn't necessarily saying that it's because of the radiation they're just saying they're also exposed to like the cosmic ionizing radiation um disrupted sleep cycles circadian and circadian rhythms and possible chemical contamination in the plane interesting which i would assume is probably the part of the reason that uh they stopped smoking on planes because because of the cancer risk 
Well, yeah. I mean, everybody stopped smoking in all public buildings. Yeah, probably because of the cancer risks. Yeah. I remember when there used to be smoking in restaurants. Do you? Uh, yeah. I remember there's this one restaurant in Ithaca that we would go to, and they don't actually... The part of the restaurant that was for smoking isn't really, like, disconnected so much. So... And the bathrooms are past there, so when I was a kid and we went there, which we didn't go very often, but you'd have to walk through this disgusting room of smoke, and you could kind of smell it from where you were sitting. Because smoke doesn't follow the rules of only smoking in this yeah, area. Yeah, <laughs> no smoking section is kind of missed by the smoke itself. I also remember not uh, non-smoking versus smoking hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. And there, there was never... Right. It always smelled like smoke. A hard and fast rule, but even if you go into a now non-smoking room that used to be a smoking room, you can still tell. People don't care. They're going to do it anyway. It embeds in the carpet. It's the problem. And they don't clean those carpets ever? No. Having worked in the hospitality industry, I know you vacuum, but it's not like you wash those carpets very often. Mm -hmm. Um, And the second thing... It's going to sound really weird. Uh, The New York Times put out this article, I think it was in January or the late December, about glitter. Um, I hate glitter. Yeah, I would. It's A lot of people hate it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But they were talking about, like, the process involved in manufacturing glitter. And the reporter was asking this company's, like, CEO or person that handles press requests... Um, if they could disclose who the biggest purchaser of glitter is. And the woman's like, no, I can I can't tell you that. Like, she's like, why, why can't you tell me who buys the most glitter in the world? She's like, they don't want it to know. They don't want people to know that it's glitter. So that just leads you to believe, like, think about all the possible industries that use glitter, but don't want you to know it's glitter. Like some people speculate it could be like toothpaste, like the little shiny flecks in your toothpaste oh. is glitter. I, I also don't, I, I also think that you just can't release people's records of purchasing that's confidentiality issue yeah but i mean if it's something that it's not a big deal about if it's like yeah but they have to give permission but if it's like a balloon company well like, yeah. wait, what does it matter but if it's like something that you ingest or well right but like you can't go up to the glitter company and be like tell me your records and then be like okay you have to get permission from the people who are buying um, and then the uh, reporter was like, if I looked at this product, would I be able to tell it's glitter? And she's like, no, you'd be able to see it's something, but you couldn't necessarily say it's glitter. Um, I had something to say, and now I forgot. Do you know what it related to? Oh, I had to clean, oh yeah, hospitality industry. I was a housekeeper for a little bit at a place. Housekeeping. Yeah, and... The things that you find in hotel rooms are disgusting, as you might imagine. But the worst and what caused me to quit is that this was a place that was mostly for adults. And I went into a room once and there was just like someone had just pooped on the floor. Just like in the middle of the carpet. Which is disgusting. Well, how do you know they didn't have like a dog or something with them? They were, it wasn't, what? It's not a pet place. Yeah, you could. I could say I'm not going to smoke in this room and still smoke in this room. No, there were no dogs. There were no dogs allowed. And it was a nice place. So it was like, it wasn't just like 
the Motel 6 or whatever. And my boss had me clean it with a toothbrush. Your personal toothbrush, I assume. No. You know. <laughs> no. And that caused me to quit. Well, but yeah, that that just made me think of it. What are you drinking? Um, Southern Tier Lakeshore Fog Hazy and Juicy IPA. How is it? What are you going to rate it? I don't know. I'll rate the, the second one. I don't want to have to think about numbers, scales, while doing this. It's it's okay. It's not the most juicy IPA I've ever had. Even though it says juicy on it. We both use Untapped, which is an app that you can go in and, if you don't know, you can go in and rate the drinks that you've had, beer, cider, whatever. Um, and then you can... Either one of those two, n- nothing else. You can't rate, like, gin, gin and tonics. No, but you could rate, like, wine coolers, probably, or malt liquor, whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Derivations of those things. But it helps because then when you're at a restaurant or if you're at the beer store or whatever, you have it all there and you can be like, which one did I like again? And so we always rate all our stuff. And Alex is a pretty steady 3.5 guy. As in you rate a lot of your stuff 3.5 out of 5. I generally start at a 3 just because most of the ones that I pick are not going to be like Bud Light or what have you, things that are swill. Bud Light has its time and place. Not fit for pigs. Bud Light has its time and place. And when is that? When you've made horrible choices and you need some water to nurse your hangover? No, no. I would not often pick Bud Light, but Bud Light Lime has its place on a summer day when you're playing lawn, lawn games. And you don't want something too strong, obviously, because you're out in the sun. And it's refreshing. The lime is good. And I think Bud Light Lime is great for outdoor activities. That's my stance on Bud Light Lime. How much are they uh, How much are they paying you? I wish. That? No, I don't because I can't drink it. They wouldn't pay me. That would be a bad marketing ploy. Aren't you going to ask me what I'm drinking? Sure, I guess. What are you drinking? <laughs> I'm drinking a Glutenberg IPA. And how is it? It's fine. Here's the thing. I think that I would, if I liked, like if I were to be gluten-free before I turned 21 and I had never had a real gluten beer or whatever, and this was what I had first had, I think I would think it was really good. And it is good. It's just I've had so many amazing, like, actual beers that nothing compares Mm -hmm. so this is good for a gluten-free beer but it's always going to have that sentence after it for a gluten-free beer you know what i mean um before we get into our stories i just wanted to say that i'm very excited with how our podcast is doing i think it's a great wonderful collaboration that we have but and we always plug everything at the end but i just want to say now if you think that anybody you know would like this podcast, uh, what we really need right now to succeed is more people to listen and more people to know about it. So if you think someone would like this even a little bit, please tell your friends. 
If your family won't judge you, tell your family, things like that. Just try to get the word out. We're doing the best we can to do that, but we only know so many people. So we would love it if you guys would spread the word too. So we can keep making this and make it even better and better with more of an audience and more support. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, Tell all people you know, write reviews. Yeah. But yeah, I just wanted to say that. And we thank you guys who do listen. It makes us really happy to see that people are downloading and listening and are into what we're doing. Because we're really into it too. Without further ado, how about you? Go first. Again. Yeah, just because I have a longer story, we thought that might be better. Um, Give it to me. See, I'm on the fence about telling you the name of this. Okay. Well, you don't have to. Yeah. Um, Do you have a moniker? It, there is, it is a moniker. It's moniker week here. I have a moniker. Not me personally. My guy. Or girl. Ooh. Um... Yeah, I guess I'll I'll hold off for a little bit on it, just in the event that it gives anything away, even though I don't think it does. Is it the ice cream truck murder slayer? Dexter's brother? Ice cream truck. Ice truck. Doesn't he grab around an ice truck? I thought that was an ice box. Ice truck? Wasn't it like just like refrigerated van? Whatever. I don't know. Um It's not the ice cream truck murder slayer. It's close. June uh uh. 23rd, 1965. Okay. Two years after Kennedy got assassinated. June 23rd, 1965. Houston police. Houston police show up at Fred and Edwina. Edwina. E-D-W-I-N-A. Edwina Rogers is a house. Um, They were called there by Edwina's nephew, Marvin Martin. Oscar Meyer Wiener. Um, Marvin had not heard from his aunt in a while and just wanted to do like a wellness, have the police to go by and do a wellness check on her. Just do a, they do that? Apparently in 1965 they did. I don't know if they still do. No way. I think they'd laugh. Um, you think so? You even like... No, not laugh, but I think they'd say no. Okay, sidetrack, I called for someone breaking into my car and the police basically laughed so boston strangler you see they did nothing about it yeah and this was also in boston yeah oh uh, but yeah i was like someone broke into my car and they're like what do you want us to do dust for fingerprints and i was like rude first of all yes <laughs> no that's not what i want i was just putting it on record so i don't know anyway um nobody answered the door uh, Fred and Edwina's. Um, so they entered and found this uh, nothing out of the out of the ordinary and some food sitting out on the table. Um, it looked like somebody had been there at some point, but nobody they didn't see either Fred or Edwina, so they weren't worth sure to make of it. They didn't look like anything had happened in the house. Um, for but some, nobody was home. They didn't. No, they didn't see anybody home. Hmm. Then nobody answered. They looked around. No, like bloody knives and stuff sitting out no handprints across the counters no they i guess this is police routine somebody was just like looked in the fridge just to make sure that i don't know nothing was going nothing suspicious going on in the fridge and (laughs) they noticed um what appeared to them to be a butchered like hog 
wrapped up in like that brown butcher paper. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. You know how it is. Butcher paper. Butcher paper. Yeah. That is what brown it's called. Paper. Yep. Um. Then you know. You know like, how it is. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm real familiar with that. <laughs> they're like, well, you know, that's, you know, that's not that's nothing strange. People do that. They buy pigs and butcher them, and they can have cuts of meat for a while. Um. They they were about to uh, close the fridge, and they noticed two severed heads in the vegetable drawer. Casual. At least they kept them in the crispers. Yeah, like where you keep heads of lettuce. <laughs> Did you? Down. No, I did not write that down. Okay, I was gonna say, that's amazing. Oh my god. Uh, the police determined that also the cuts of meat in the fridge uh, were the torsos and legs of uh, Fred and Edwina. Wait, the people who lived there, their bodies were in their own refrigerator? Cut up like a hog. Oh, so Fred and Edwina aren't nuts. They're in the fridge. Aren't nuts? What do you mean? Like, they're not killing people and putting it in their own fridge. No. They are um, killed and put in their own fridge. Yeah. They were cut up and put in their own fridge. Their heads were decapitated or severed and put in the vegetable drawers. Mm. Um, so if you recall, I just said that it was only torsos and legs. Yep. They never found the arms. They don't oh, know where they, they don't. Still? Yeah. The arms are just missing. Is this another unsolved case? Alex, you jackass. Uh, based on the evidence presented to them, heads, torsos, and legs, police officers were able to determine that the couple had been killed about three days earlier on June 20th, which also happened to be Father's Day. Fun fact. That's not fun. Fred had been killed by multiple strikes to the head from a claw hammer. His eyes were removed or gouged, gouged out along with his genitals. His genitals were found in the sewer, like I guess in like the storm drain outside their house. How do they know they were his? They just, I, uh, they probably, I don't know, picked up the penis and testicles and matched them, or they just assumed that severed penis and testicles were of the man missing penis and testicles. Just, oh. Penis and testicles. Penis and testicles. <laughs> um, and that Edwina had been shot execution style. Uh, they also determined that the two were then after both being bludgeoned and then shot the two were moved to their master bedroom where they were drained of all their blood exsanguinated sure that's what that's called Mm -hmm. Um, and they were then dismembered by someone with quote some knowledge of anatomy Hmm. doesn't everyone technically have some knowledge of anatomy yeah I mean I know my foot bones connected to my ankle bone Oh. But I wouldn't be able to make a clean cut and. Did like, you know that song? What? My grandfather sang that song all the time. The bone song, the na 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 na. You know. Yeah, I yeah. knew probably words of it at some point. I couldn't do the entire thing at this point. Mm. Do they actually say like femur and stuff in no, that? No, it's they just like say the ankle connected leg to the leg bone and the leg bones connected to the other leg the, bone. The ilias. No, they don't say that like that. Um, so like I said, when they came in the house originally, they didn't notice any blood or anything. You know, you would expect a lot of blood if you were to, uh, exsanguinate exsanguinate two elderly people and then cut up their bodies. Right. Um, the little bit of blood that they did find, uh, led to the couple's son's room who was living in the attic, apparently. Oh. He had, yeah, he had an attic room. Wait, wasn't the nephew who uh, had them? The nephew called because he hadn't heard from his aunt. But there's, there's 
but their son lives there. Yeah, their son lives there. He, okay. uh, at the time of this murder, he was 43, and he was living in the attic. At least he's not living in the basement. He's breaking the stereotype. Why is he up there? Some Quasimodo um, shit. Yeah, the couple sons. A uh, couple's son was named Charles Rogers. Uh, Charles was a University of Houston grad with a bachelor's in nuclear science. Wow. He was a Navy pilot during World War II. He also worked for the Office of Naval Intelligence. Um, after the war, he was then, because uh, he served in the war, after the war, he was a seismologist for nine years working for Shell, like discovering oil and gas. Cool. And then he just quit one day after nine years of working there. He just unexpectedly quit. Um Aww. Who knows why? He also was reported to have you know, been able to speak multiple languages. This guy's brilliant. Yeah. It's a shame that blood trails lead into his attic attic room. Mm-hmm. Um, this next part is a little iffy, I think. It's just like in the mid-50s, he then joined the Civil Air Patrol. You know where that is? No. It's kind of like the Boy Scouts. If the Boy Scouts like learned about planes and flew them. Huh. Yeah, just kind of just like prepping the youth of America to be able to oh. fly planes and do stuff like that. Um, it was while he was in the Civil Air Patrol, he met David Ferry, which I didn't know who this guy was. He was named as a conspirator in the JFK assassination, though. Huh. So, yeah, he had a BS in nuclear science and he did all these wonderful things. But by 1965, Charles was unemployed and living with his parents in Houston. He must have had some sort of break. Probably. I mean, he was a pilot in World War II. He probably saw some saw some things. Right. Um, yeah, he was described as a reclusive by his neighbors, and most of his neighbors didn't even know he lived there because he would go out in, like, dawn and just return at dusk. So people never saw him there because he was gone dark to dark. Yeah. Nobody really... I have never saw... If people suspected he did something, he just would leave for the day and come back at night. Weird. He also allegedly communicated with his parents by slipping notes under the door. And that was like the only communication or interaction he had with his parents. Yikes. But after an exhaustive manhunt, police were not able to locate Charles after discovering his parents' bodies butchered in a fridge. And that's more or less it. There's some other stuff at the end, but yeah. What do you mean there's stuff at the end? There's like, um, in 1997, a Houston couple named uh, Hugh and Martha Gardner, Gardiner, wrote a book on the murders, and they hypothesized that Charles was the killer. Um, he killed his parents because they were physically and emotionally abused, or he was physically and emotionally abused by them. Uh, I don't know how they know this. They allege that Charles owned the house that he lived in with his parents, not his parents. Oh, so, like, his parents moved in with him Well, are there records about that, though? Yeah, I, I guess this is, like, the only part that I found about this is, like, um, these couple's book is the only part that, like, I guess uh, solidified this. Right. No other articles that I read actually, like, said this outright. It's just, huh. like, in this book, they say he did this because... So it's cold case, and then he's probably dead now, right? If he was alive, you'd think he'd be 97, 98 at the time, or right now. So it'll probably always be a cold case. Yeah. Um, Do people mostly just think that he did it, though? 
I believe so. It's the most obvious, like, you know, like Occam's Razor. Right, yep. Um, but yeah, he was, so they say he was physically and emotionally abused by his parents. Charles actually owned the house, not his parents. Edwina had apparently taken out loans on his house and other uh, properties by, they were defrauding him on various other properties that he owned. owned. Um, his dad, when he was a child, was like a loan shark or something like that. And he then would often steal money from his son. Wow. So not to say he had motive or reason to kill his parents, but he had motive slash reason to kill his parents. <laughs> they That couple would then go on to uh, allege after the murder, Charles would leave for South America where he would later die. They're just like making this up though. Yeah, they say Mexico and then went to South America to continue working as a seismologist slash like a person who would find oil and gas. I don't know how they reach this conclusion they're just like he did this in the past so he's probably doing it now still maybe they are and maybe it's like historical fiction maybe they're just like writing a book and they're like basing it on reality but they don't know anything yeah so after four years after the murder so in 1969 we just probably i think we had just gotten to the moon Houston police had legally declared him dead. They just couldn't find any evidence of him being alive or anywhere in the area. So they're just like, he's dead. He might be dead. He might be dead in 97. Well, he might be dead then. Yeah. Um, Some people also believe that he was an agent with the CIA and possibly did have some connection to the JFK assassination. His parents found out and he killed them. Oh, and did it. Yeah. Also, fun fact, how they were, like, never found the arms. Um, he also flushed out, flushed all their organs down the toilet. How? Yeah, I think, our, cl- our toilet would clog. I think he's, I saw he had ground them up and then oh. flushed them down the toilet. So it's also possible that... Maybe he flushed the... The penis? The, the dick down the yeah. drain. It's also possible that's what they mean. Because I just always saw... Uh, the sewer out front. I just imagine like the sewer drained from like it, and he just like he took just, the penis like, and hucked it in there. He just like tossed a penis on his way out. Yep. Also, like if you just killed your parents, you probably don't want to be like manhandling your father's penis. I mean, you <laughs> can't even respond to that. If sentence. I if we could uh, put that on iTunes, we probably would. But that's the title. I can't move fast that sentence. <laughs> also a really weird thing, on one of the websites I was reading about this, they had like Texas like police procedures, like videos, like training videos. Uh-huh. And there was just like a person's autopsy in the middle of that video. You watched a human autopsy? Yeah. Wild. Like I originally thought also that it was like a real murder victim too because like it starts off with like a guy laying dead on the floor like it's real no it's not real no the dead on the floor is not real but the, the, the autopsy the was? autopsy was real yeah from the body farm no i mean i don't i don't know obviously but probably yeah you wouldn't put a murder victim there um also because like that video goes on it's like how police do their do their thing it goes through like a gsr testing and testing for poisons and stuff i don't know what gsr testing is gunshot residue ah okay 
Um, police started wearing gloves in like the twenties to like so they didn't become contaminated with like biological materials, but right. they didn't wear really wear them for crime scene preservation until like the eighties. Wow. So the entire time during this uh, icebox murders, that's what they're called. Oh, got it. Yeah. Police are just like handling like the claw hammer and stuff without gloves on. <sighs> Casual. Yeah. They really made a, a botch job on this. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a frustrating part about like all past crimes is that it's often just like a hot mess. Yeah. You're like, I've seen so many episodes of Criminal Minds. I know that's not how you do it. And you're like, I could be a better police officer. Yeah. So that's the uh, that's the icebox murders. Unsolved and probably will be unsolved forever. Until they find those arms. Yeah. Those will have to turn up, right? Oh, they might have been burned or something. Yeah, I don't know. Could it be bur- I, mean, I assume they would have checked the backyard to see if they were buried back there, but... Some guy's going to die, and on his deathbed, he's going to be like, and here are these arms, and just hand them to the police, and then die. Like Perfectly preserved human arms. Well, maybe not preserved, but... Huh. What causes a guy who has so much going for him? I mean, maybe he didn't do it, but like... Yeah, um... If you cleaned up an entire crime scene, you think you would miss, or not miss, a couple drops of blood leading to your he own probably bedroom. didn't do it i like to think he didn't i don't know he's also kind of shifty with his under the door notes wouldn't he have also turned up at this point though no unless his friend killed his parents <gasps> what if his friend the friend that was thought for jfk what if his friend killed his the parents for him and then what they and they both just ran to south america i don't know interesting well, it's a good one. Are you ready for a trip? Are you ready for a ride? Are you ready for a roller coaster? I don't like roller coasters. Yes, you do. Liar. Um, okay. I'm going to do the same thing as you. I'm not going to tell you the moniker. All right? Eventually it will. But not yet. Okay. Let's start off. I'm going to switch things up a little bit in order. I'm just going to start with the victims, and we'll go from there. Okay? Okay. All right. So, on June 5th, 1945, Josephine Ross, was, who was age 43, was found in her apartment in Chicago. So, we're going to... The story takes place in Chicago. So, she was found dead in her apartment she was naked repeatedly stabbed and her head was wrapped up in a dress also something interesting about her was that all of her wounds were covered up with clear tape trying to fix it i I guess um and dark hairs were found in her hand indicating that there was some sort of a struggle but there was no other evidence present no valuables were taken or anything like that and when they looked into her, uh, her murder, they checked like her fiance, her former, her former boyfriends, things like that. Everybody had alibis, so they just had this victim mm-hmm. in Chicago with these weird elements of the crime and nothing to go with. On December eleventh, nineteen forty-five, so five months later, 
or six months later, rather, Frances Brown, age 32, was found in her apartment. Now, before I get into uh, the details of this murder, I would like to take a moment for a Frances PSA. Brought to you by Frances. Frances is an interesting name. It's not super common. It's very common back in the day. If you think about it, you know, some people have like great aunt Francis's or whatever like uh, that. Derives from uh, when there were two countries of France. No. And women were named after that great nation of France's. <laughs> I hate you. No. Okay. This is serious, Alex. This is an important part of your life world history and important facts everyone should know name me one important francis francis scott key he wrote the national anthem uh but it's a very confusing name because there's a guy and a girl's version you could be a male or a female francis but there's a different spelling for those two so for guys francis is spelled with an i like the saint right or the pope sure um and for girls, Francis is spelled with an E. And one way to remember this is him has an I in it and her has an E in it. But a lot of people have no idea that there's a difference in Francis spelling, which gets really frustrating being a Francis because your name is always spelled wrong and nobody knows your gender and things like that. Um... And when I was doing my research, I looked at Murderpedia, and I know they pull things from other sources, and I'm not sure where they pulled this from, but they spelled Francis wrong, which I think is super... It's even worse because it's a murder victim. Mm -hmm. I think they really should have checked to make sure that they were spelling it right, but it was spelled with an I, and it definitely wasn't... It was a female, so it was not spelled with an I. Everybody thinks they know how my name is spelled, so they don't even bother... Checking. It's just like this. People can't wrap their brains around Francis as a name. It's just so confusing to people. I just wanted to say that. Anyway. So she was found on December 11th, 1945 by a cleaning woman for her building. And the reason the cleaning woman was skeptical about her apartment was there was loud music playing and the door was open. And that was kind of weird for... I was going to say cleaning women have keys to people's apartments i don't know probably not in this scenario well you just said the door was open yeah it was um so she was like this is weird and not normal so she comes in and she finds francis slumped over the tub in her bathroom she was shot in the head and and a knife was shoved through her neck so hard that it had come out the other side and it was like a dull knife and she was washed clean of blood the first victim was also washed clean of blood and her head was also wrapped in a towel and there was no fingerprint evidence or anything like the first scene except that later and i'll get into it one thumbprint was found by the door and this case this murder scene of francis brown was is the most well known of this case because there was a lipstick message on the wall is this familiar to you I don't think so. So there was a lipstick message on the wall of the apartment that says, For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. You say that, but if you really wanted to be stopped, you would have written your name in lipstick too. This is where you can find me. P. Yeah. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney. 
But here's a, I, I know you guys can't see it, but here's a picture of the uh, message. If you look up, he goes, he got the nickname Lipstick Killer. So if you look up Lipstick Killer in images, you'll see the images. But he's got some weird handwriting. Letters are uppercase and lowercase, and it's not super neat. But he leaves that message on the wall. But this second line just doesn't make any sense at all. For heaven's sake, catch me. It looks like heaven, Sarah. Sarah, eatch me. Eatch me. Yeah, I know. Before one kill. Yeah. Yeah. So he leaves that on the wall and he gets the nickname the Lipstick Killer. And clearly this guy's struggling with what he's doing. When the police come and they investigate everything, they like question everybody around and someone in the building said that they had heard shots at 4 a.m. And the doorman said that a nervous man aged 30 to 45 kind of like fumbled out of the elevator and ran out of the building. On January 7th, 1946, so the next month, Suzanne Degnan, age 6, is found missing out of her bedroom by her parents. Um, so she has found kidnapped, and her, this was, like, really publicized. She's a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. The police are really on to this. They're like, we're going to get this guy. We promise. They don't know that it really has anything to do with the other ones, but they're all over it. And when they come to investigate, they find a ladder outside of her window and a ransom note that says, get $20,000 ready, spelled R-E-D-D-Y, and wait, with an E on the end, for word. Do not notify FBI or police. Bills in fives and tens. And this note is also weird looking, like the capital is... Yeah, $20,000 in fives and tens. This one's all weird looking, like... The handwriting's really bad. It's really scribbly. It's gross. It's dirty. It's also on, like, the very edge of a piece of paper. Yeah. I think it's a thin piece of paper, but, yeah, it's bad handwriting. It's all chicken scratch. She's probably looking for somebody with low intelligence. Yeah, low intelligence. Exactly. And on the back of it, it says, burn this for her safety, and it's S-A-F-T-Y. So he spelled safety wrong. So they find this note and they get worried. Um, uh, they are trying to figure out what's happened to this little girl. And while they're doing their, you know, precursory investigations, someone has been repeatedly calling the house demanding this ransom. But every time they talk to them, the person hangs up before they can get anything from it. This is before, like, phone traces mm-hmm. and everything like that. Right after this happens, the mayor at the time, Chicago Mayor Edward Kelly, receives a note. And this note says, This is to tell you how sorry I am not to get old Degnan instead of his girl. Roosevelt and the OPA made their own laws. Why shouldn't I and a lot more? And the OPA, do you know what that is? I didn't. Good, I didn't either. The OPA is the Office of Price Administration, so they, like, set the prices for big products that okay. are everywhere. Sure. At this time in our country, there was this huge nationwide meatpacker strike. This is when The Jungle by mm-hmm. Upton Sinclair comes out. 
about like poor working conditions in meatpacking industry and like unfair treatment. I thought that book was in like the 1800s. No, it's in the yeah. It, it takes place in the 40s. So there's this huge meatpacking strike going on right now, and Roosevelt and the OPA are talking about rationing products that are associated with this so that would go down Mm -hmm. like that would decrease the business for meat packers and so that would hurt people and their well-being and mr degnan the father of suzanne the little girl who's kidnapped Mm -hmm. was a senior opa executive who had just moved to chicago so he's big on in that department and his little girl was kidnapped and this note makes it sound like the kidnapper really was going after her father it would also lead one to believe that he worked in the opa or something otherwise i don't think they're going to say john degnan moves to chicago well vice president or whatever yeah he they think either he worked in the opa or something or he was a meat packer he might what they mostly believe is that he's a meat packer then the police get an anonymous tip on the phone that lead them to a sewer a block from Suzanne's house and they find her head in it. So this is just hours after they find that she was kidnapped. So he moved fast. You know, there's always like the 24 hours Mm -hmm. or whatever. This was way faster than that. So her head's found in a sewer a block from her house. How was it cut? What? It's cleanly cut. Rough edges. Uh, No, it was very, very, very clean. So there's your answer. About what? Meat meat butcher. Well, yeah. Yeah, so it was very clean. So they're thinking meat packer for sure or some sort of surgeon or doctor. Um, But besides being decapitated, her right leg was found in a basin down the road, like a storm basin. And her torso was found in a different drain. And her left leg was found in another drain. And months later, her arms were found in a different part of the sewer. Found the arms. They did find the arms. Everything was found. Um, so she's been just totally chopped up within a matter of hours. And they canvass the area. They look in different buildings. They look in a nearby apartment building and go door to door and talk to people. And they also find themselves in the laundry room. And the police find that there's just blood in a bunch of the drains in the laundry room. And the press calls this room the murder room. Which is not accurate because her autopsy shows she was only dismembered there. So she was dismembered there, um, but killed elsewhere. And like we said, clean cuts, everything like that. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing else left in the room except just blood in the drain. No fingerprints or anything like that. So those are the three victims. So they're trying, they're, they're in hot water for this case. Like, they need to figure this out. So they're doing everything they can tons of witnesses start coming forward most of them really don't have anything important to say the police give over 170 polygraph tests to people but most of them were unreliable you know people want their day in the media yeah sure one woman frida meyer lived in the apartment building that the blood was found in the laundry room and she said that she saw a man come in stay 10 to 15 minutes, leave, return for a few minutes, then leave and return again. That's the best they got. 
But they decide that you have black hair or dark hair. Why? Oh, because of the hair found in the hand? Yeah. She didn't really have much detail, just that she saw a man come and leave three times. But they decide to arrest the janitor of the building, 65-year-old Hector Verberg. Does he have dark hair? He's 65, so probably not really dark. I don't know. I didn't see a picture. They arrest him basically because he worked there. It's not like he had clean butcher skills or surgery. Um, He was the janitor, and they were like, he's probably in the laundry room a lot, so they thought it was him. And they also were said that his hands were dirty and the ransom note was dirty. So that's another good clue. Obviously. Um, the police try to pressure his wife into implicating him, but she won't. She's like, he seriously didn't do this. I don't know what you're talking about. And this is what's really, really messed up. They hold him for 48 hours for questioning. But the entire time, they just severely beat him to try to get him to confess. Mm-hmm. He it wouldn't be admissible in the court anyway, so. Well, I don't know what the laws were back then. I guess. So they're beating him horribly, and he won't confess. He just doesn't know what they're talking about. And because of the beatings he gets, he spends 10 days in the hospital recovering from his injuries. And it turns out he couldn't even write English at all. So he wouldn't have been able to write the notes. He was completely illiterate. And he ends up suing the Chicago Police Department for $20,000. It's a coincidence that it's the same as a ransom. But I also went to like a inflation calculator online. Mm-hmm. And $20,000 then is about $275,000 now for your frame of reference. Um, I think he originally sued them for $15,000, but they awarded 20000 so he gets that money, and his wife gets some money, and it's just, like, the worst thing that could have happened. They really messed up. And implicating someone because their hands were dirty is a really bad choice, and he was really hurt because of it. Mm-hmm. Sure. So then they look into someone named Sidney Sherman. The reason that they look into him is because they find... Blonde hairs behind the apartment building and a wire. And the wire could possibly have been used as a groat. And next to it was a military-issued handkerchief with the name S. Sherman on it. So they look into their records in the area, and they find that someone named Sidney Sherman lives nearby. And they think, this has got to be our guy. So they went to question him and find out that he left his house unexpectedly and quit his job without picking up his last paycheck. So they're like, oh, shoot, this is bad. So a nationwide APB manhunt goes out. And finally, they find him in Toledo, Ohio. They uh, go to question him, and he's like, oh, well, the reason that I left is because my girlfriend and I decided to elope. And we just left. They took a po- he took a polygraph test, which I know are not like, hundred percent, a hundred percent. But they took a, he took a polygraph instead of the girlfriend, and they both passed. And it turns out that that was actually what happened. And the owner of the handkerchief they found out later was someone named Seymour Sherman. But he has no idea how his handkerchief got in Chicago, because he was out of the country. So the handkerchief was just a random thing that happened to be in the alleyway. 
Then they decide to look more into the phone calls that had been made while they were investigating. Remember I said that someone had been calling demanding the ransom and nothing had been coming of it? Right. So the police are looking more into this and they ask local hoodlums questions about, you know, did you see anybody, anything like this? Did you do anything? They ask these local teens things and a boy named Theodore Campbell admits that his... Like a friend of his, Vincent Costello, killed Suzanne Degnan. He just sure. lets them know. And when they looked into Costello's record, he had an armed robbery conviction at 16 and had gone to reform school. And Campbell said that Costello told him that he kidnapped Suzanne and disposed of her body. So... They find Costello and bring him in, and they bring in Campbell, and they question them. And based on these polygraph tests that they take, this is all about the polygraph tests back in the 40s. So they both take polygraph tests, and it turns out that based on these tests, neither of them really know anything about the murder. They just wanted attention. Yeah. So the police are like, what the heck? Your polygraph tests have proved that you don't know anything about this. And they both admit that they knew certain details about the crime from being in the neighborhood and overhearing police Mm -hmm. and that they just wanted to get attention. attention. So at this point, they have nothing. And months and months go by and they still have nothing. At some point, a man named Richard Thompson. Thompson. <laughs> Richard Thompson is not his name. That is my dad's one of my dad's favorite musicians. Uh, a man named Richard Thomas came into the police at one point and said that he did it. And they checked his left hand for his hand, and his right hand for the handwriting, and his left hand kind of was similar to the handwriting on the wall. But then he ended up recanting and said he actually did it, and he didn't know any details about it. I don't understand people that like try to admit to crimes or take credit for crimes. I don't either. You're go- if if they believe you, you're going to jail. What's what is your motive there? I don't know. And like those two kids, they could have ruined their lives. I mean, they're kids. They would have gotten out when they're like maybe they would have gone to juvie. On June twenty sixth, nineteen forty six. Yeah, seventeen old. I mean, 17 what, but days, months, decades. On June 26, 1946, 17-year-old William Hirons is arrested for attempted burglary in the area. And a janitor tried to stop him, but he had a gun. And he runs away from the police that ensue this call and it ultimately what comes of this chase scene and this doesn't even sound real this sounds like the darkest version of the looney tunes an off-duty policeman happened to be out on his balcony and he dropped three clay flower pots on Hirons's head on like intentionally yeah rendering him unconscious he sees the police chasing this guy and drops flower pots on his head nice yeah, right? Isn't that awesome? So they bring him in, and then they think that this guy, he was burglaring in the area, and they are like, 
oh, you know what? This might be our guy. And you know, at this time... Shave dark hair. <laughs> I don't know. If you don't know, then he's not the guy. <sighs> so, you know, at this time, Chicago Police Department has their questionable ways of getting information from people. So he has a brutal interrogation. So when he gets there, he drifts in and out of con- uh, out of consciousness because he's been hit on the head with flower pots. But he was also being drugged with sodium pentothal. Truth serum. A.K.A. truth serum, which is a barbiturate. And it's also used in, it's often used in veterinary hospitals for euthanasias and things like that. So he was drugged without knowing. So he's going in and out of consciousness. He was interrogated for six days straight without food or water, and he was not allowed to see his parents or speak to a lawyer. Solid. And in one session of interrogation where they're trying to get him to confess, a nurse comes in and burns his genitals with ether, and one of the detectives punches his genitals as well. Nice. So he's in extreme pain. And at one point, under all of this pain and drugs and everything, he says that George Merman committed the murders. And he's, like, druggy and things like that. So they, the, the press started calling it George Murderman. Mm-hmm. And they thought that maybe this George Merman was wasn't... A, what? I was going to say, is a made-up person? Was an alternate personality of his. His middle name was George and merman it's not really a last name so much so they think that maybe he was talking this was like a glimpse into an alternate personality an issue that he might have and so they keep trying to question him and on day five he receives a lumbar puncture without any anesthesia just to give him pain and to torture him, and he's in excruciating pain, obviously. And then they give him a polygraph, but he can't complete it because he's in so much pain from this lumbar puncture. Also, they should know that if you do a polygraph, well, you like, you can beat a polygraph by like poking yourself with like a tack or something oh. when you're lying mm. or telling the truth, and it throws up the results, and you can't accurately detect. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what his heart would be all over the place with this amount of pain. Anyway, yeah. Then they take away the sodium pentothal, and when he's sobered up, he tells a nicer policeman again... We're going to back up. Yeah. He tells a policeman who's been nice to him the whole time that George Merman did it. So he said it out of drugs and under drugs that this George guy did it. And... He told the officer that he knows George Merman and that George Merman told him to hide all the things that he had stolen from different crimes in his dorm room and that he met George when he was 13. But then he also says that George Merman was in charge of this crime, but he sent William Hirons out to kill for him. Okay. Sure. It's, a little convoluted. It's group. complicated. Also, he's been drugged and he's gone six days without food or water, and so it's all very complicated. And he said that he specifically went him sent him out to kill like a cobra. And he said that throughout their childhood being friends, 
George, he had always been blamed for things that George had been doing. So, so might this, as well just keep it up and just keep doing what George tells you to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, and at this point, they're like, well, this seems like a textbook case of split personality issue, you know? They haven't even bothered to look into this person, alleged person. They, they don't find a George Merman. Oh. Yeah. They then have William Hirons write some sentences and things to check for handwriting. And the handwriting was kind of similar, but it was not very exact. However, the thumbprint on the door at Francis Brown's apartment, you know, I said there was one thumbprint. It matched George, uh, sorry, it matched William Hirons's thumbprint and fingerprints found on the ransom note also matched. And then they also went and they found this loot that he was said that George made him hide in his dorm room. And they found all that, which, fun fact, included a scrapbook containing pictures of na- Nazi officials, a copy of Psychopathia Sexualis, which is a book about paraphilias, a stolen medical kit, and a gun. A medical kit? Just like a first aid kit? No, like tools, like scalpels oh. and stuff. But they did say that the medical kit couldn't be linked to any of the murders because it was too fine of tools, like scalpels and things. Couldn't go through a skull. <clears throat> so they find all this stuff. I mean, it could if you tried hard enough. It's true. They find all these things. They find fingerprints on the ransom note that matches, and they find a thumbprint on the door jam at one of the apartments. When they look into the background of William Hirons, he grew up in a suburb. His family was a little poor, and his parents argued, so he was a little bit, like, distant from them and kind of just wandered the neighborhood. And he did steal, but... um. He was really smart. He was accepted into the University of Chicago at age 16. Um, at age 13, they he was arrested for having a gun, and they found all this stolen goods, which included furs and cameras and jewelry and things like that. And he said, yeah, I've burgled homes and I've shoplifted. But he never had any like violent tendencies or anything. But um, high and at this point, so they found all those details, the like evidence that mm-hmm. would suggest it was him. His own lawyers believes that it's him, and is kind of given up on the idea of it not being him, which is kind of what gets him into hot water, in a way. So, Hirons' lawyer is just like, listen. You know, I know, we all know. Take any plea bargain that they give you. And the plea bargain that's on the table gives him three life sentences consecutively in order to avoid the electric chair. I mean, you can get out of three life sentences. You could. You just fake your own death three times? No, but like sometimes they rethink people's, you know, statuses and crimes and things. So he's like, you need to take this. Mm -hmm. You won't get the electric chair. That's what's most important here. Like, you know you did it. I know you did it. And Hirons agrees to the plea bargain. He answers all the questions people have for him. He reenacts murder details. And he also knew some details about, like, the apartments. Later, when he was interviewed, 
he says, though, that he confessed to save his life. Because this is on day, like, seven or something, and he's been so tortured. So he says that he did it just to save his hide. When they ask him about the tools that he used for Suzanne Degnan, he said that he had a hunting knife and he disposed of it on subway tracks. A subway crew did find a hunting knife, and when they brought it in, Hiran said it was his. On August 7, 1946, he takes full responsibility for all three murders in front of the public and press. And September 4th, he has his full trial and admits guilt. That night, he did try to hang himself in his cell, but he was found before he could go through with it. And when people asked him why he was doing that, he said, Everyone believed I was guilty. Before I walked into the courtroom, my counsel told me just to enter a plea of guilty and keep my mouth shut afterward. I didn't even really have a trial. And the next day, he's formally sentenced to three consecutive life terms. When he left the courtroom, the sheriff asked him if Suzanne Degnan suffered when he killed her. And he said, I can't tell you if she suffered, Sheriff Mulcahy? Mulcahy? Whatever. I don't know. It's a hard name. Um, He said, I can't tell you if she suffered. I didn't kill her. Tell Mr. Degnan to please look after his other daughter because whoever killed Suzanne is still out there. So he really does not, he's not admitting it really. He's doing it to please everyone. But he was able to provide details of apartment layouts? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yep. So, he fully believes that he's innocent, and there's actually quite a few details that kind of suggest the same thing. Um, For one, I'm going to just go through what could be a reason to believe he's innocent. One is that the state attorney paid $1,000 for him to be given truth serum and was, you know bribing people to do things so that's kind of fishy and it could be that he just wanted this case to be closed and someone to blame um when they looked at the polygraph tests in which Hiran said he was innocent the they were ruled as inconclusive by polygraph experts but later in a textbook they're looked at like in modern day and the results that they say were not inclu- inconclusive, they showed him as innocent. Okay. So they were like, oh, it's inconclusive. We don't know. He says he's innocent, but it's inconclusive. And in modern day textbooks, they're like, what are you talking about? By a polygraph standards, that's very conclusive. It is that he's innocent. Two handwriting analysts showed that his handwriting did not match the ransom note or the lipstick. And a third handwriting expert said that he was trying to decide disguise his handwriting but it was his however that same expert that said it was his earlier said that he doubted the two handwritings were done by the same person and that they probably were done by random people so he goes back on that and in 1996 so years years later an fbi handwriting analyst said that the two not notes do not match hirons so modern day again they're like that's not his handwriting this, is he still alive i'll get there <clears throat> just wait does he have dark hair just wait <laughs> does he have dark hair um in terms of the fingerprint on the door jam in francis brown's apartment there are suspicions about that and why it's there 
When they went in there the first time, they didn't find it. When they went back in there, the police found it. And it looks exactly like a rolled fingerprint. So, like, somebody who's, like, putting their fingerprint on a fingerprinting Mm -hmm. thing. So, they're thinking that maybe... Well, they got his fingerprints when he was brought in drugged. They He re- tells interviews that he kind of remembers someone taking his fingerprints, but he wasn't sober, so he had does, it's foggy for him. But people think that they took his fingerprint and then, like, rolled out a, that same fingerprint on the door jam. Oh, man, what is the time difference between them finding the fingerprints and having him in custody? Like a day or two. Along the same lines, the fingerprints on the ransom note linked to Hirons are also questioned because of the timing they were found. So when they first got the ransom note, they dusted for prints and they found none. Then they looked at it again and they found two fingerprints, but they were incomplete. They sort of matched Hirons. Then they looked again and they found a third one on the back and it matched Hirons completely. And that third one was found two weeks after Hirons was in custody. So there's that. Mm-hmm. And then his confession and the crime were analyzed next to each other. So his details that he knows and the crime details that they definitely know were looked at side by side. And after looking at them together, there are at least 29 inconsistencies between what he said and what the crime was and also people think that the you know that one handwriting analyst said oh those aren't even the same people's handwriting people think that the press put the lipstick on because they got to the scene of the crime before the police did so they think they put that there just for added media sure i mean that makes sense like i don't understand why you'd call and be like i did it but i understand why as a reporter, you would put something beefier, you know. But also, at the same time, they had him in custody and nobody else died in a similar fashion. I mean... It's true. The murder stopped. Yep. And he did say that George Merman, who could be his alternate personality, sent him out to kill. And I don't know much about this, but I'm not... I think it's possible that your, like, motor skills change from split personalities so i think you're like at least handwriting and stuff changes in split personality yeah situations but Mm -hmm. also the two methods of or i guess the three methods don't match at all yeah the one girl was decapitated the other two had things covering their faces but that's still those two are similar enough yeah but decapitation is nobody's so those are just reasons why his innocence is possible. Also, I previously mentioned that there was a man named Richard Thomas who came in and said that it was him. And then he recanted. Um, like I said, also this a handwriting expert said that there was a real similarity between the handwriting of the ransom note and his left hand. And it's possible that it was him. He recanted when they brought Hirons in. So they, he might have been like, oh, never mind. It wasn't me. Um, reasons that people believe that it could have been him was he previously had a conviction of extortion with a ransom note about a little girl. <laughs> he had similar handwriting. At the time he confessed, he was awaiting sentencing for molestation of his daughter. He had a violent history. 
He was a nurse with surgical supplies. He was frequently in a car agency near Deg- the Degnan residence. Um, he was a known burglar, and he confessed freely. But it doesn't matter. He died in prison in 1974 because, like I said, he was awaiting trial for molestation. So okay. it could have been him. But, you know, everybody, based on the trials and based on the confession and everything, everyone's like, it's William Hyren. So he goes to prison for it. He goes to Stateville Prison in Illinois. After he's admitted to prison, his whole family changes their last name. They want nothing to do with him. Also, his parents end up getting a divorce. The stress is too much for them. But he was kind of an amazing prisoner. Yeah. While he was there, usually are though. Yeah, he get he was um he earned a bachelor's degree in prison. He was one of the first ones. I think he was the first one too in Illinois. So he earned a bachelor's degree. He was the manager of the garment factory, so he managed hundreds of inmates. Um, and he set up an educational program in prison that helped people earn their GEDs while they were there. He almost got parole, but. People fought it. He kept trying to get parole, and people who know knew the victims and everything were like, no, don't release him. He's awful. So he didn't get parole. He was transferred to a minimum security prison because he did all these amazing things. But he was living in the hospital ward. He suffered from diabetes and was in a wheelchair. So he was having really bad health problems. And then in 1998, he was transferred to a different correctional center, Throughout this entire time, he was continually trying for clemency, which is getting pardoned from his crime. He was like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I did it to save my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and on February 26, 2012, he suffered complications from his diabetes, was taken to the University of Illinois Medical Center, and on March 5th, he died at 83 years old. Um, and he served the sixth longest sentence in the entire world, which was 65 years and 181 days, because he was 17 when this all happened. So by the time he died, he still said, it really wasn't me. I was, you know, being tortured and everything mm-hmm. like that. Um, so, yeah, that's that. The lipstick killer, William Hirons. Or color not. hair did you have though? Huh? Color hair did you have though? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um, well, you can't say they like found hair and then never do anything. Well, with all it. the pictures are black and white until he's an old man, and then it's gray. Yeah. Um, something that I do recommend though is GQ. Did it? The men's magazine. Yeah, the men's magazine. Well, or or not, but GQ did. Uh, an interview with him in prison and it's like a pretty long interview article but it's really good i recommend reading it i read it and that's where i got a lot of information because it was directly from his mouth Mm -hmm. so you know that's the best source is straight from the horse's mouth but it was a really great article so i recommend anybody listening go read that read the interview because I don't, okay, I don't know what happened, obviously. Nobody knows what happened. But reading this interview makes you believe it wasn't him. Which is, like, maybe the idea behind that. But this guy went down to his dying day being like, it wasn't me. And even on the day of his trial, he was like, 
I don't know what happened to Suzanne Degnan. I hope she didn't suffer. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say because I think Ted Bundy did the same thing though. It's like I it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Oh, I know. I know. I think prob okay. If I were to guess, I think probably it would it was probably him. And that it was probably some kind of weird disorientation with himself. But I don't know. I'll never know. He did a lot of great things in prison, though. So, like, even... Here's what I'm going to say. Even if it was him, like, not good, right? But, like, he did a lot of good. Which is great that he, like, had that ability to turn some things around. Like, he spent that time and he didn't just waste away. He got a lot of people education and started an entire like organization to get people to get their GEDs and things like that and that's to me is important so there's silver lining he did good he did bad he did good allegedly allegedly did bad definitely did good probably did bad yeah that's that you ready for a thing Ready for a thing. Are you ready for a thing? So, as we all know, I walk around on a college campus and I hear the darndest things. And this one evening, I was walking around and I hear this girl talking on the phone. Said, and they were roommates. What? Troy Vine. No, I don't know it. It's basically it. It's just like. A girl walking by, somebody's like stupid. She's like, and they were roommates. And just the camera turns to the guy that's filming. He's like, and they were roommates. <laughs> Apparently, the story behind it, it was like it was like two guys that had like Sex? yeah, they got into a relationship. Mm. This does have to do with sex, though. Um, so on the phone, she goes. He literally talks about sex so much. I think that people who talk about sex should have a space to do that instead or something. To do what? Sex? No, talk about sex. There should be, you know what? Sex space. There's no sex space. There should be a room where all you do is just talk about sex. So that nobody else has to hear about it. Like online. Like a chat room. No. I think she was meant a physical room. Can you imagine if you just, like, there was a room designated in, like, a dorm or a building where if you ever wanted to talk about sex, you had to go into this room? She's like, he talks about sex so much. They should have a room where they do that. The sex room. The sex room. Where you just chit-chat about it. And you're confined into that one space. It's such an interesting... (laughs) I get it. Maybe you don't want to hear about it. That's fine. I don't always. I don't want to hear about that often. But like. Anyway. I thought that was pretty funny. The good one. Thank you. So, that's that. The end of episode five. Five. Um. Five fingers. Sorry. Yeah, uh, if you like enjoyed the episode, leave us a review on iTunes. I also assume that you can review on other sites like Spotify, but I'm not 100% about that. Um, if you feel so inclined, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 
Sad Tales Podcast. Yeah, where our episodes are available on tons of different places. We're available on Apple Podcasts. We're available on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you find your podcast. Go seek us out. So tell your friends or whatever that have not listened to or if you think they would be into it. Yeah, please tell someone you know. We'd love it. And subscribe, download, and keep on listening. Keep on keeping on. And we'll see you next week. Adios.